Welcome back to the show. I'm so excited to have you all here um, and uh, I get to talk to you. So thanks for listening. You could have been somewhere else, but, uh, you know, I want to thank you very much for being here with me and my guests today. What a wonderful show we have for you today. I hope you enjoy it. Um, I know I certainly did making it. So I want to say thank you for joining us. Uh, this is the best way you can support us. Keep listening. Keep uh, liking and sharing um, all of our social media posts and go tell your friends and family verbally about the show. That's another great way to get it out. Spark up these conversations and then refer them to our podcast. Uh, you can also donate to the show. Uh, there should be a link at the bottom of whatever podcast app you're listening on. Not required. This show is free for you listeners. Um, and recently we took out... Uh, all ads except for our own um, to improve your listening experience so that cuts our um, budget quite a bit um, and it would be really helpful if we can get some listener support to keep that going so that we can eliminate um, tedious ads that we all hate and we don't want to listen to um, if we can get some donations in there to cover some of those costs that those other ads uh, covered before then we won't need them anymore in the future how wonderful for all of us so please feel free to donate even a dollar helps um if you have found any value in this show guys uh throw us a dollar throw us five bucks um it's the cost of a uh, your morning coffee maybe um but just throw us a little bit of cash and we can keep this going for you indefinitely so this is a show for you guys supported by you guys um so yeah Thank you. Also, go check out our YouTube page. That's the Mind Ops YouTube page, M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S. And you can go to our website, mindops.com, M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S.com. Um, find all kinds of cool stuff on that YouTube page. Uh, I've set up a library of different videos going over um, in greater depth a lot of the theories and concepts that we go over here in the show. So if you hear something on the show and you just want to find out more about it and you don't know where to start, go check out our YouTube page. That can get you started. Um, also send us, you know, um, questions. Um, you can go to the mindops.com website and send us comments and questions and things like that. Ideas for the show. Uh, we want to incorporate it all. So thanks again for coming to the show, guys. Here's some Arturo Complex for your listening pleasure.
All right. So today's good news story comes from the goodnewsnetwork.org. And the name of the uh, article reads, Video Game Industry is Nudging 250 Million Gamers to Protect the Planet. And I thought this was really cool. Uh, usually an article about video gaming would have... Um, Past my come through my feed and I would have just scrolled right through it. But because of COVID, <clears throat> my wife and I broke down and got ourselves a PS4 Pro, which has been amazing in in occupying our board uh, uh, minds during these um, pandemic times. And we've gotten a lot of joy out of getting back into video games. I haven't personally played them for. You know, over a decade, but it's been really fun uh, exploring some of the new technologies and really cool. Uh, my wife used to be a big gamer on World of Warcraft, um, was like a ranked team player in the world or something. And um, so it was a passion of hers. And it's been really fun for me to kind of delve into that and see the joy that comes on her face when she uh, when she gets to play those games, too. So this article is really cool. Um says uh, some of the world's largest mobile video game developers have formed an alliance to raise awareness about renewable energy and the climate crisis through the UN's Playing for the Planet initiative. Um, so around 11 companies who cover uh, 900 million active users are leveraging these uh, huge number of eyes and ears towards combating um, evildoers in the games they're playing and also um, unmitigated climate change in the real world. Um Really cool idea, you know, people are already looking at their screens for these games, so why not help spread some word um, and get people moving towards action on some of these things. There's some stuff in the article about something called the Green Mobile Game Jam. Um, uh, let's see, educating users on renewable energy and environmental impact of climate change. Um, some developers are adding uh, unique stages and levels of the gameplay featuring world regions that are most affected by climate crisis like Bali and Indonesia, the rainforests. So you can play these storylines on your games uh, in areas um, that need our help, which is really cool. It raises awareness, gets people um, emotionally invested in some of these places because maybe they played a game in that area. Um, there are in-game fundraisers. Um, that are going on that help contribute to, um, to some of these efforts. Uh, let's see. And it says that console gaming, so PlayStation and, and um, Xbox, things like that, are going to be able to contribute to this as well. Um, let's see. Sony's introduction of energy-efficient technology and suspended low-power mode for next-generation PlayStations puts the company on track to save 29 million tons of carbon dioxide by 2030. Pretty cool stuff. Uh, they talk about specific games like Minecraft, things like that, where you can um, push these kind of message for uh, sustainability in our environment. So, really cool stuff. I like how they're using this uh, gaming platform to help promote... Um, positive and ethical environmental practices that's amazing all right so what's been on my mind recently a lot people uh and i know i'm not the only one so i've been going through this this personal inner journey recently um and i'm not going to get too into the details as i'm sure um little bits and pieces unfold at different times on the podcast and some of you probably piece some of the things together of what i'm going through but Going through like this uh, this individuation process, healthy individuation in which 
I'm trying to untie some of the bound up knots of, um, you know, spiritual connectivity that I have with my parental figures. Um, and a lot of my own spiritual energy has just been knotted up and tied up uh, with thoughts and feelings and emotions and all sorts of things um, directly tied to my parents. And um, I thought it was time that I need to, you know, I was feeling stifled and stagnant. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't live to my full potential. I was low energy, all these things. I just figured, like, I need to free this energy back up that's being drained um, you know, because it's it's enveloped, it's tied up, it's knotted up uh, in relation to my parents. So I'm going through this internal process of, of untying things from my past and um, re-examining them and relabeling them and, and retelling the stories around them so I can change. And um, so for me, I like to liken some of these journeys and a lot of journeys in my life to Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey. And if you guys haven't heard of this, uh, you have been exposed to it. If you watched any movie, if you watched, if you read any sort of, um, I don't know, novel or book, you've been exposed to the hero's journey probably subtly. But Joseph Campbell, he did these studies of many, many cultures over uh, human timelines uh, way, way back to the beginning and found that we all, all cultures have told myths, uh, archetypes to help us understand the human condition and in life and things like that. And in these myths, there are particular stages that seem to appear uh, in most cultures across time. And uh, he's put them together in, in some great works of literature. Um, it's oftentimes referred to as the hero's journey or the monomyth or things like that. But it's basically, um, I believe it's 12 stages in which the hero, in, in all of our cases, we are the hero of our own journey. So that's the role we play. So the hero of the journey goes through these 12 stages um, in order to overcome a huge um, ordeal and then to come back to change the world with, with newfound knowledge and gifts that he's received, uh, he or she has received from overcoming this obstacle. And, um, you know, there's a lot of different stages, very important. Each one is very important. But in my own internal struggles, I like to transpose my journey on top of this hero's journey just to kind of be a roadmap for me. Give me an idea of what stage I'm currently at in whatever process I'm going through, what I've already overcome, things I can look back on and and draw strength from, and what future stages I have yet to come so I can better prepare for them. Right now, currently, in this individuation process that I'm going through, I'm going what's through what's called the Valley of the Dead Souls, which is this uh, this dark, dismal valley with um, tests and uh, fear and um, all sorts of, you know, uh, dark imagery as you approach this uh, this giant cave where you'll descend and face this ordeal. And in my case, uh, the mythology that I've assigned is a dragon. So I'm going down into this cave to slaughter this or slay this dragon. Uh, individuate myself and then come back and, and change others uh, as well as myself. So right now I'm currently in that stage and that's what's been on my mind is like all these uh, all these major tests coming up and the hero's journey and how really helpful and useful that that has been for me on my path. So um, if you haven't, go check out Joseph's, Joseph Campbell's, uh, one of his most famous books. It's called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. 
and it really breaks down uh, this monomyth, the hero's journey, and um, can be really useful for any of you guys out there listening to help put some context and some structure around whatever you're going on, uh, whatever's going on for you in life. It's really helpful. So just one tool. I find it useful. Take it or leave it. All right. So today's guest, uh, very special guest, good friend, Christine Pateros. Um, now, when I asked Christine, uh, I call her Chris. When I asked Chris what, uh, how she would like to be described on the podcast, her first thing she said was, I hate all labels, um, which I love that answer because I do too. It's sort of like we, we box ourselves in innately when we label ourselves, even if we think that the label is, is a good label. It's still limiting. So overall, Chris is a seeker and a seer. Uh, she considers herself a bridge between worlds, uh, the living and the dying, or um, this carnate reality and uh, reality that exists after um, our passing. She's a painter, a registered nurse, uh, Western-trained and uh, registered nurse. She's a ketamine-assisted psychotherapy therapist, a researcher. Uh, she specializes in shamanic energy medicine and has been trained by indigenous peoples in Peru. Um, you guys can find Chris uh, at uh, Christina Pateros Art on Facebook. That's C H R I S T I N A A. Uh, last name is P-A-T-E-R-O-S Art on Facebook. You can find her at ChristinaPateros.com. You can find her at Whispering-Stones.com and at SpiritFilledJourneys.com. So I'll put all that information in the description so that you guys can link directly to it. Man, we just had a great conversation today. I hope you guys enjoy it. We covered so many different things from spirituality, ceremony and ritual, altered states healing, uh, her shamanic training, um, spirit realms and entities and the different landscapes that go with the different dimensions and realms. We talked about her role as a medium and talking to the dead. We talked about death in general. You know, it's been on our mind a lot lately with COVID stuff going on. So we talked uh, about death and what that means and how to approach it in a healthy way. Um, yeah. We talked about a lot of things, so I hope you enjoy it. Buckle up, because this is going to be a really good deep dive. I uh, hope you enjoy it. Here we go. with interesting people. Our mission is to engage the collective mind piece by piece to bring greater clarity of mind to our listeners locally and across the planet and to contribute to broaden the shared experiential knowledge and wisdom of existence. Hey folks, welcome back to Conversations with the Mind. I'm your host, Shane LaMaster, and today we're here for episode number 84 with very special guest, Christine Pateros. How are you? I'm well, Shane. Good to be here with you. I'm excited we get to get to know each other better. Absolutely. And um, I'm just going to refer to you as Chris throughout yep. the podcast because that's how I know you by. Perfect. I have three names, so yeah. I answer to any of them. <laughs> yeah, I often say, um, you know, I've been called Sean in my life and other things. And uh, my response is always that 
you know, when someone mispronounces my name, it's like, oh, I've been called worse or, you know, you and I were talking before the podcast started about how much um, we hate labels in general and our name being like one of the most used labels that all of us sort of attribute to. And that's sort of, you know, it's all interwoven with like ego and identity and, you know, that name, that label carries so much story behind it, right? Oh, that's my co-host, by the way. My <laughs> Like, Hello. <laughs> yeah, names are are huge, and I really do have three. So, um, and they do a whole different energy, all three of them. So it's an interesting thing. I got Christina in Peru from my teachers in the Andes. As soon as they met me, they said Christina, and it just felt really free and alive for me. So that's actually my creative name. So I sign my paintings, Christina, and I write professionally. So when I'm published, it's Christina Pateros. But my birth name's Christine, and Chris covers both. <laughs> but they, it's interesting how they all have, um, you know, like their own story, their own personality, their own way of going throughout the world, um, these different things that we call ourselves, right? Like, I mean, I, I refer to myself as Shane, um, but, you know, another identity is like maybe a student or something and, and approaching life through that label um, really influences how I show up. Or, you know, if my label is volunteer and, and the story that I put on that too, or, um, you know, husband or something like that, they all carry their own, you know, mixture of, of ways that we approach, you know, the consciousness aspect of it. Absolutely. One of the shamanic rituals that I've been a part of that actually as we're having this conversation, I'm thinking it's a good time to do it now through all of this cleansing and clearing. Um, the identification of all the roles and then offering the acknowledgement of those and then offering them to the fire. So whether writing them down on cards or on paper or just holding them in the energy but then um, offering them and turning them over to see how, see what comes back, right? When we let it go, then we see what holds or sticks. What have we been holding on to that doesn't apply anymore? So thanks for that reminder. It's a really powerful one. It's, I did it in my schooling, my training, my shamanic training as a ritual and a ceremony. And um, I'm going to do that this weekend for solstice. <laughs> Yeah, um, the fire ritual in particular has been a part of my recovery journey. I know when I went through rehab, um, you know, we had a fire ceremony where we wrote down things that we could never, or we thought we could never tell anyone or be forgiven for, or um, things that we were just holding on to that we never told anybody, wrote them down and then offered them to the fire. Um, and since then, I've, you know, I've suggested the practice to other clients of mine with similar things or with relationship um, complications or things like that. I'm wondering for our listeners, though, if you could describe just real quick what what the fire ceremony offers and, and sort of what fire represents as this transformational element. Yeah. Well, fire being one of the elements are pieces that I honor always as part of my opening invocation as I'm doing any kind of ceremony. And as grounding forces, really. Fire, however, being one of, as you mentioned, transformation, transmutation, and um, that element that really will take it and 
you have to turn it over because fire is going to win. If you think you're going to be in a battle with fire, <laughs> fire is going to win out. So it's, it's, an, it's a relationship like any relationship, really. I just had a fire ceremony Sunday morning with a dear friend up at Rocky Mountain National Park for hours in the morning before a big hike up, up on the mountain. And it's really in the way that I've been trained, and I love this practice, is sitting, honoring first, calling on all the helping spirits, including honoring fire, knowing what my intention is and having the ceremony. So I do this with clients as well. I'll have fires on, on their behalves or encourage them and teach them how to do this. In the, my workshops, if we can have a fire ceremony, I'm going to have it for sure. And then sitting with that fire once it's started and, and starts to really take hold, sitting with it until it really becomes approachable and friendly. And that's out of respect. So I really sit with it and say, I use the word prayers now, and it's a non-religious way for me because it doesn't mean that for me, but I was raised Catholic. So at one point, I would have not ever used that word, but it doesn't activate for me in that way. Prayers are intentions. They're offerings from my heart. They're, they're asks for help, for support, for guidance. So then sitting with the fire, and I just intuitively know when it becomes friendly, when it becomes approachable, when it's ready for me to go in even closer. And I actually put my hands in the fire. And I will do, as you said, offerings. Sometimes I will have things written down. Sometimes there'll be things that I want to burn that I've gathered from my life, from my home that are ready to go. And sometimes it's despacho ceremonies, which we've done, right? We've done one at some of the trainings. Um, I haven't there. had any of the trainings yet. Okay, okay. This was the, the Prati one with the group, but because um, we don't do them at the other um, professional trainings. But the despacho ceremony is a, the, the really core practice of the Andean Pacos, the mystics from the Andes. And it's all based in honoring Mother Earth. So it's using, in Peru, it's coca leaves, which is the most sacred plant in the Andes. It's the, it's the pure plant. It's the pure leaf, right? Mm -hmm. And they use the leaves, and they, um, the tradition is three leaves, but I have teachers who are very creative, and, and um, I appreciate that. So they say, yes, traditionally it's three leaves, but use one if you want to use one, use two if you want to use two. They call it a kintu, and it's a vehicle for the prayers. It's a, a vehicle for the traditions. So the despacho is created. It's really a living mandala and no two look alike. So in Peru, they actually have kits and, you know, they have all the elements from the earth wrapped up and they have certain ones that they use for certain things. But really the way that I practice and the way that I've been taught, which I appreciate so much, is to honor the land that you're on and to use the resources of the land where you are. So while I have brought back some of those despacho kits from Peru, it really is authentic for me to use the flowers that I get from Trader Joe's here in honor. One of the grocery stores I go to and, and the flowers that come home with me that I try to surround myself with. And I use bay leaves for the kintus here. And it's really a magical process. And ceremony really takes me out of my head into my heart so that I'm not thinking I have to figure everything out. And then the offering to the fire is literally wrapping up the despacho in paper and making that offering to the fire. Sometimes right away, 
right there. And sometimes the despacho sits for a little bit, maybe days, and then it gets offered to the fire. And that's the turning over in the similar traditions of cultures around the world, right? The Buddhists who make those amazing, the monks who make the amazing sand mandalas. Painstaking, but not for them. It's, it's joyful. It's, it's, it's present. It's, but it looks so intricate and amazing. And then they just put it all in a pile and offer it to the water. So, yeah. I love the symbolism in the fire ritual. Um, of you know taking it's almost like a form of alchemy right you take this this prayer this piece of paper you have so much and you pour your emotion or your story onto it and so now this this physical object carries the story and then the fire itself transmutes or changes that story into you know its atomic form again and literally releases it out into the atmosphere out into the universe and so the symbolism behind um you know, this alchemic transformation has always been very powerful for me um, in particular, but I, I found it interesting that, uh, you know, I've taken part in a couple um, Lakota peyote ceremonies in the teepee, and um, according to the tradition that, that we were taught, uh, the fire in the middle of the, of the teepee is the primary source for information, primary source for connection to the spirit world, and you're, you're sort of instructed throughout the entire ceremony to try and focus your attention on the fire as much as possible. Mm. Um, and it's an all-night ceremony, so it can be exhausting. And uh, you know, you're sitting in this lotus position for extended time, and it's hot in there and smoky. And I have tried so hard to engage with the fire um, to the best of my ability, but so far um, that has not been the, the biggest source for me for messages or insights uh, in mm. those types of ceremonies and i'm wondering for myself like what am i missing um in order to connect to this fire i tend to get more uh ancestral connected connectedness through like the sweat lodge that we do afterwards mm-hmm. um which there is an element of fire in there with the red hot or white hot stones that they put right. in there and in the pitch black all you can see is the heat from from the fire within these rocks within these stones and that has really shown me uh incredible visual imagery um but it, the fire itself within the ceremony has not and i'm wondering from your experience have you ever had that same issue not being able to connect or have you ever helped anybody learn to connect a little bit more deeply mm-hmm. first firstly i just love of your i love your awareness of your relationship with fire that you're you're really not feeling like it's a mutual relationship is what it sounds like to me in that form at least um and that alone right there is the start because everything is a relationship in my world anyway so that's really the main thing that i have to say about that with anything it's about the practice and it's about getting to know the fires so it makes sense to not a new being in shamanism, right? Everything is animated and everything is alive. So everything is speaking, but it doesn't mean we always hear it. (laughs) So one of my prayers is to hear my guidance. They're always here. The helping spirits are always here to hear, hear them whispering to me, showing the, be aware of them guiding me. So it's the same with fire. Fire is the spirit, this, this entity, this alive being, 
And so it's the maybe have an invitation to the fire of, hey, I want to get to know you, fire. So can we start a relationship? And asking for that permission, that's huge. Because everything is animated, everything is alive, everything is a spirit. So, and some are more, there are personalities. So fire is pretty fierce, right? <laughs> I'm a Leo and sun <laughs> in July. So um, there's that energy. Every, personalities are important. I mean, when I talk to dead people, the personalities are pretty much the same on the other side. It's amazing. It's just, it still blows me away with people that I know. Um, and so fire has those characteristics. So what I would say is practice. And yeah, there are ways, fire ceremony, which could be with a candle. You know, in Colorado here, where we are, we can't really have fires in a lot of places for safety reasons because it's so dry. I can't have them here in Boulder. So that's why I go high up to the mountains, usually to the park. And um, so there are other ways to do it safely. So just a simple lighting. I have this huge beeswax candle right here that I haven't even lit yet. Um, just talking to me right now. It's all, it's made from beeswax. So, you know, just lighting it in a, in a sacred way. And what is that? It's, it's with reverence. You know, to me, that's what sacred is. It's with reverence and with connection to what I, what is in the unseen, what I don't know. And there's mostly, I don't know. That's just how I, I just, that's how it is. So it could be as simple as that and putting a toothpick in it. So using the toothpick as the vehicle, as opposed to any of the earth elements, that would be a bigger despacho ceremony. So there are always ways to do it. And I'm working on a, um, working on a presentation right now, actually. And um, one of the slides I have in it is a picture of me in line at Trader Joe's. I sound like a real Trader Joe's fan. I do appreciate um, the the entity that Trader Joe's is. And um, I'm in line here in COVID-19, right? We all have our masks on and the line winds around the block. And it was really a sacred moment for me. The first few times I went out with masks on, I was in tears. I was just in complete tears. Like, this is for real. This is for real. This is, we are on earth right now and this is happening. We're taking care of each other because there's a virus that's new and, and we're taking care of each other. But in that line, I took a picture. It's in my presentation. The flat irons are in the back. So the foothills of the Rocky Mountains for those that, I don't know if this is just local, but, um, and it was a sacred moment for me as I stood there in line waiting for my turn to be able to go grocery shopping. So much gratitude for what was taken for granted before that. We didn't have to wait in line to go to get groceries. We could go get whatever we want whenever we want. So sacred can be so basic and so simple. And that's why I included it in my presentation because it's not having to go to Peru and be on the mountain at 16,000 feet with the mystics. And yeah, that's great. But it could be right here with the candle and lighting the fire. So that's what I'd say. And I'd be happy to, I'd be, would love to have fire ceremony with you. So we can sort that out. Well, you brought up so many interesting topics that I'm sure we're going to um, get to, but before we move off of fire, um, you know, you're talking about uh, having a relationship, right? And we're always in relationship with everything around us, uh, internal and external. And um, I haven't really thought of it that way, to be honest, uh, my relationship with fire and just reflecting as you're as you were speaking like on my relationship with fire when I was younger 
I was a total pyro, you know, I, I, lo I lit my action figures on fire. I lit my mom's car seat on fire once. Oh, no. <laughs> it was very much, uh, you know, a thing for me to play with, but it was still destructive. Um, yeah. And, you know, through different experiences with fire and through using fire in ceremonial ways, um, I've found that, you know, fire, what it means to me these days is, yes, it is a destructive force, but it also brings renewal. You know, I think of nature and we have fires here in Colorado. There's fires going on right now across the country. Um, and wildfire always brings destruction, but it also brings uh, flourishing of growth afterwards. You know, it sort of clears that slate. And so that's been my understanding and how it's changed um, over the years. And um, so I don't know. I do you have a particular? Well, you mentioned Leo, and um, I want to say, can I can I interrupt okay. you for one second? We'll get yeah. back to Leo. I just want to honor your relationship that you already have with fire because you just described it from a young age, right? And then you described it in your deep healing process with giving to the fire through that clearly very guided, what I would call ceremony. That's because that speaks to me. But that's a ritual. It's um, it's a process. It's a, for me. It's like a prescription. So I'm not a prescriber. We know that from the ketamine work. I'm a I'm a therapist. But um, for me, it's truly a prescription. Like here is this this experience, this ritual, and you did it. So I just wanted to acknowledge that because it's super powerful. And it's those, it's transformation, transfiguration, and transmutation, exactly what you just described. It takes it. And that's where the magic is. You don't know where it's going to go. Right. It may be gone, and that might be the end. Or it may come back in some form that is even more amazing than we could imagine. So I just wanted to say that to honor you. So, Leo. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah. My question was going to be, would you say out of the the elements that fire is the one that you identify the most with. Um, I, and I asked that question because I've reflected on this myself and I feel like I personally identify the most with like uh, mountain or earth energy. Um, you know, I've had clients and friends uh, who I've been in altered states with just tell me like you, you have this stoic, you know, unshakable groundedness to you. Um, and I really connect with that. And so, you know, that's why I love living here right next to the mountains, because I can connect with that piece of me. But I also recognize that I need to have uh, equal relationship with all elements. Um, and that, you know, always relying on what might be, you know, automatic strengths with the mountain energy um, might be to my deficit if I'm not engaging some of my uh, weaker attributes, which are always there, right? All the elements are right. part of us. But if I'm not engaged right. in that, then I'm I'm selling myself short. So that's a long, mm. long, long uh, description to ask you the question: Do you identify most with fire, and how do you find that balance between elements? Yeah, well, I love your description because it makes this the conversation that it is, because we are all all of them, right? But mostly water as humans, and um, it as you were speaking, um, being Earth. I'm curious, and I'm not a practitioner of the Dagara tra tradition from West Africa. However, I have been a recipient of it. So I would invite you to check it out because in their tradition, I don't know if you're familiar with it, 
but this is Maladoma Somme and I have um, a friend and colleague who um, I've worked with. He's a drummer, um, Toby Christensen. So each person is one of the element, elements primarily in their system. And you can look it up. Um, so I'd be curious if you are earth in their, in their system. So for me, and it is about balance too, for me, the way that I see it. So we may be primarily one, which I do feel like we, we are, that speaks to me. Um, I'd have to say water because I, I mean, fire is sun. So I'm naturally that water really speaks to me as well um, because of that flow. And I know when I'm not in the flow, like if I'm dehydrated, boy, do I know my body is not going to be in my brain are not going to be in alignment. So there's, I guess, a more day-to-day awareness of the water piece, probably because we're made up of mostly water. Um, But earth, I'm with you. I mean, the mountains called me out here from Chicago. Chicago's water, earth and water, right? Lake Michigan, one of the Great Lakes. But my lineage, which is what I always try to connect into when I'm honoring or I do ancestry work a lot, I'm connecting all the time because I'm asking them for guidance and support and help and wisdom, whether they're alive or, um, or in spirit. My parents are still alive at 92 and 86. So I'm asking them as I can. And then those in spirit, some of whom I've never met, right? Um, the, the deeper lineage, but um, my lineage is from Greece. So that's water. I mean, it's earth and water and Poland actually. So that's mostly earth because they're the waters, you know, a little further away, but, Greece is, and it's an island that we're from. So that really, really speaks to me. But I appreciate and honor all of them because without all of them, we wouldn't be here. But that's what I would say. Earth, air is good. Good to breathe clean air, especially when we've had smoky, smoky summers. That was new for me. And I started to pray and really say thank you for clean air. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I love having these conversations with people because um, it's very much a transpersonal experience for me, right? So, um, yes, we're having a conversation and a dialogue and we're coming to interesting conclusions, but there's a whole change process going into me in reflection and like I'm integrating what you're saying into some of my experiences uh, for greater clarity. So I just appreciate that and I love that. Thank you. Mm, thank um, you. It's a joy. Um, so... I don't know if I've told you this, but martial arts is like a huge part of my life. Um, I've been a martial artist since I was four. Um, I've been practicing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for uh, over a decade. I've become a professional in the sport. And um, so Jiu-Jitsu for me is sort of this, um, you know, it's a ritual. It's a dance. It's a ceremonial space uh, in which I get the opportunity to engage all four of those elements that we were talking about, right? Mm. So as you were speaking about it, um, I'm, I'm recalling different experiences I've had in jujitsu where like um, fire is like getting that extra bit of energy that you need to escape from somebody sitting on top of you when you feel like you're, you're out of it, you know, when you don't have anything left, you engage that fire element or um, like water, right? Bruce Lee is a great proponent of water. He says, be like water. Um, you know, you need to flow if you're going to be good. So finding that flow in the martial arts, yes. uh, mountain energy, be, you know, using pressure and using um, body position to, uh, you know, to add 
um, pounds per square inch for a technique to work or mm -hmm. air where I, where I get more acrobatic and I'm sort of, um, you know, doing cartwheels over people or, you know, setting up movements that, that sort of move like air or like wind around the opponent. Um, so that's, that's great. And, uh, thank you for allowing me that, uh, that reflection. That was, that was really cool. Um, and I'd like to add magic or ether to that. Oh yeah. The fifth, the sure. fifth element. We'll talk about that one a little bit. Yeah. I'm when I invocate, it's always inclusive because it's that unknown, right? The elements we know we're embodied. So we can, we can feel them. We live them. We can understand them in our mind, but there's always that element of the unknown. So that fifth one of magic or ether is for me, the world of unlimited possibilities. That's, that's the realm that fascinates me the most too. And, and the one that I'm basing my dissertation on is around the cool. whole mystical experience. You know, when people reach or get a glimpse at the fifth dimension, um, the fifth element. Um, and this is, I think this is a good segue to start getting into and, and talking a little bit about something you brought up earlier, which is your ability to be a bridge between um, this human realm and uh, other realms, uh, whether it be the afterlife realm or the ether realm or whatever, you know, people want to ascribe to it. Um, and in particular, mediumship and talking to uh, deceased people yeah, yeah. or entities. Um, I know that this is like a big, you know, this is a, a big topic in uh, psychedelic research and psychedelic um, theorizing about being able to interact with other entities and other dimensions. You know, people regularly report seeing the same entities uh, between experiences on like DMT, you know, seeing the spirit elves, um, as well as, you know, similarities in certain ceremonies. I'm wondering if you could, you know, it sounds like you are well-versed in in uh, some of these other realms much more than I would and this just fascinates me because I know that they're there you know I have a guardian angel my grandmother who died when I was uh, five or six and I didn't even know her that well but um, I have regularly felt her presence uh, in really tough times and tough mental situations when I'm especially contemplating my relationship with my own mother her daughter um, I feel like I've seen her as like a ghostly apparition at times at the foot of my bed, giving me comfort and, and grace. Um, and she's even shown up to me in various altered states um, to deliver very simple but profound messages. And it, it comes in her form. Um, so mine is a limited experience with, you know, personal experience and from what I've read about, but uh, I would love to hear about yours. You know, around all this stuff. Yeah, this is this is fun and a big one because we're all born knowing, right? We come from spirit, and I've had I've had journeys seeing myself come into the world. And my mom just told me just recently, she's like, "Yep, two thirty-four in the morning." I remember, and I have five brothers and sisters, so I'm not like the only child, right? Yep, two thirty-four in the morning. I remember you didn't. We got to the hospital. I was having contractions, and you didn't want to come out. All of a sudden, the contractions just stopped. I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> I wasn't quite ready to, to come into all of this. 56 years later, I'm like, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm still not ready. But here we are. 
So we come in as this light being, this ball of light. And in my journey, I saw this ball of light come into the world, me as this baby. And really, my parents not knowing what to do with it, with me. <laughs> like, wow, what is it? And we have this naturally. Children see. There are, there are studies. Uh, I was just listening to Eben Alexander, the neurosurgeon who died from meningitis and wrote Proof of Heaven. Mm. So he talks about consciousness and the afterlife and um, just talking or listening to him this past Saturday. And, and I've been with him at conferences as a colleague. So I love his his story, his experience, and his work. And he was referencing um, studies that are done. I think it's a University of Virginia. One of the researchers studies children and their stories that can't be tracked in their embodied life. And they're their soul stories. And they're accurate factually. Like they talk about people that they know or knew. And, and it's, that's just amazing. So there's I don't need that kind of proof, even as a bridge. You brought up me being a bridge because I'm Western trained. I'm an RN. Reclaim that through, thank you, COVID-19, as I've, and along with my mentors, Phil Wolfson and um, even Scott Shannon talking about, oh, will, will the nursing be useful? But um, I am that bridge between being Western trained and really embracing the energetic world and that everything is alive for me. So as a child, I don't have a lot of memories from my childhood. Um, I know my um, childhood mostly from pictures and our movies. Um, but I have certain really sweet memories, like the apricot tree in our backyard and living with my grandma upstairs and, and my grandma taking care of me. So why do you think that is that you have fewer memories from childhood? Um, a lot of intensity, a lot of trauma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, and worked on that, but work that that's a lifelong yeah. endeavor and have been for more than a decade. So, um, that clear awareness. Yeah. I have that clear awareness in my own personal work. So really I wasn't aware consciously of the magic and the seeing and, and the knowing until I started to wake up, which was really started to question in my thirties. So, and before that tracing back, it was clear that the avoidance of death was a thing. It was a thing for our family. Um, and that's just how it was. Like, don't talk about it doesn't really exist until somebody dies. Then maybe you can go to the wake and the funeral but we're just really, and then we're going to have a, a, a luncheon afterward and we are going to celebrate that person's life, but we're really not going to talk about death and death is a part of life. I mean, it's, it's another stage. And while I'm still here, so I am no expert, I can speak about my experiences as I do connect with spirits because that's what, that's what energy healers do is we're, we're the connection between this world and the spirit world. So it was really in my 30s I started to question, and I remember um, I have two daughters. They were in grade school uh, age-ish, and I was volunteering at the Catholic Church because we were raising them Catholic because that's what we did. That's what we experienced, and that's just, it was just put it in line, do what we've known, right? And suddenly I started questioning. It's like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? And that's really one of the things that I hope that I've instilled in my daughters is just 
ask yourself why you're doing what you're doing, no matter what it is. If you're buying a can of beans at the store, just know why you're buying a can of beans. Just be conscious with it. Because <laughs> you like beans. Great. That's a good enough reason. <laughs> but just be aware of why you're doing what you're doing. And I didn't have that until that point. And I started having a conversation with one of the nuns in the office as I was volunteering because I was an avid volunteer. I've always been an event director on all levels, you know, with my kids and out in the world and love that work. And she said, how are you doing? And I'm sure she sensed something in me. And I said, I don't know. I don't know how I'm doing. She said, tell me. I said, I'm questioning everything. She said, good. Keep questioning. And I get emotional just saying that. She gave me permission to start wondering. And so, and that was a nun from the Catholic Church, which was not my background. We had wonderful people in our lives. My parents were amazing, liberal. Um, one of the artists, the, the presentation I'm doing is on shamanic experiences, art, healing, and soul, encounters of the soul. And I grew up with artists in our home and, and, people who were either priests or nuns and then they left that order and that commitment because they wanted to, to get married and they wanted to have families. So all that was normal for me. And so, uh, two of my father's dear friends, my parents' friends really, but my father met them at the Art Institute of Chicago. My dad's an artist as well, were Ralph Arnold and Bill Frederick. And they were just part of my life as a young being. And they were both artists. Um, Ralph, Arnold was a black guy and Bill Frederick was a white guy. So that was just normal in my life as well. And they were gay. And that wasn't talked about in our household, but I knew they loved each other. It was just like, there wasn't, there wasn't anything unusual. <laughs> I knew they were together, you know, it was just a normal thing. So um, just all of these pieces fed that questioning, that, that permission, which I didn't feel like I had before that. So then I stepped into Reiki and then I stepped into craniosacral and then I stepped into the shamanic training in the, in the mystical Peruvian Andean Carol tradition. So it was there that I began, but it's taken all of these 10 years to even really have awareness and consciousness of it. I mean, I really, I feel, feel like a baby in my art as an, as an artist. I feel, I feel like I'm getting closer to, to wisdom in this work um and that's how it is you don't you know it's it's <laughs> wisdom is is earned wisdom takes time and even though i'm 56 i feel like in some ways i am just reborn so i do talk to dead people um and the mediumship piece in a direct way is actually really new through this pandemic area mm. and i've always connected with spirits on behalf of other people always in my work with others in, in energy work, but I didn't do it directly. So they might sense that someone is around or they might ask me as we were working and I would let them unfold that for themselves, which is really empowering because that's what my work is about. It's about empowerment and people knowing that they have direct revelation and they have direct connection to all that is, whatever they want to call it whatever is in the unseen world and whatever forces are beyond us. For me, it's creator and universe and great spirit and, and then all the ancestors. So just in the last three months, I'm actually sitting with people and letting them come with a desire to connect 
with a deceased person, usually who they knew, but sometimes the invitation is wide open. So when I work with people, I say this could come in many forms. And if there is someone that you directly want to connect with, great, we'll call them in, not up to me. I don't know who's going to show up. Let's see who comes through me. It could be ancestors that they never met. So they may not initially even know who it is. And I'll tell you a story about my great grandma who appeared to me last year for the first time, really. And I had never met her. She's my great grandma. Um, I didn't even know my grandma. Um, and I barely knew my grandpa on that side, my dad's side. Or it could be the collective oneness of the universe that comes. And if someone is open for guidance in whatever form they will best be able to digest and hear and receive, then it comes in whatever form. And it's not mutually exclusive. It could be depending on how long we're working and, and um, what the messages are that are coming through for them at that moment. The, collect, the cloud collective came once with one of my friends when I was working with her. Um, in, in calling in the spirits for direct messages for her. And she said, this is so meaningful. Um, I live in the Midwest and it's cloudy a lot. So I can really relate to that. It's something that I can talk to because I can see it. So it's been really powerful. And my older daughter actually has been a huge teacher in all of this. She really gave me the ultimate permission because she saw a spirit in her room every day every night when she went to bed and I didn't know it until she was, I don't remember what age, but I want to say at least eight, if not older, might've even been older. So she had gone through her whole young life with this spirit in her room, not knowing what it was, not talking about it and sleeping every night with the covers over her head and the door open of her closet. And finally we started a conversation because there was a show on TV, Lisa Williams, who's a medium, psychic medium, and she's connecting with all these spirits. So it gave all of us permission. That blew me wide open. And then my daughter told me, Violet is in my room, mom. I said, really? Yep, she's dressed in purple. Oh, wow. Just started to open up that conversation with her. She had permission from this TV show that we were watching in the early 2000s. We go up into the attic one day and don't have any awareness that anything's up there. We're only the second owners of this home in Oak Park, Illinois. It's an old house, like 80 something years old. And we find a music book and we open it up and written in pencil is Violet. So Violet was one of the sisters who had died in the house and Violet was still hanging around. Wow. So we had a ceremony for Violet and ushered her out of the house and said, we know this was your house. And she used to speak through the light in the living room, which was this really amazing, cool uh, art deco light, original to the home. And it would clank. And I'd be like, what? Why is that clanking? There was no explanation. It would just clank. And we would turn it on when it would be off. So I knew it was her through the light talking at any time of the day or night. So we had a ceremony, not the way that I do them now, because I didn't have a clue. I just spoke to her. I was like, okay, Violet, we know you're here. This is our home now. We so appreciate that we live here and that you lived here when you did and it's time for you to move on. And she did. We never heard or saw her again. That's beautiful. And that piece about permission, I think is so important for people to hear too. Um, because, you know, it sounds like at first 
you didn't realize your own power, right? You had to get permission from this nun who was um, an authority figure, maybe in your in your story. And um, now, you, you know, you're coming to a place and hopefully for the listeners, they can learn from this too. realize for all of our sakes that we all have the power to give ourselves permission to be curious, give ourselves permission to question everything. We don't have to rely on somebody else to give us that. It's always there. And if you don't give, if you don't engage with that, well, then you're, you're like giving up your power to somebody or something else. Um, you know, that's just a construct, you know, and you're, you're you're a slave in your own, you know, life prison. Um, another thing you said, right. So there's all these studies about how kids can interact with the other side and spirits. And I'm a big believer of this too. I saw a lot more, um, things like this when I was younger and I have this theory. Um, I don't think I'm the only one that holds it, but, uh, that, you know, kids have this very creative imagination they're engaging much more of their um right brain uh, at that age and um you know they they may have pathways in their consciousness that are more open to those realms and then as we go on we're exposed to more and more uh social conditioning um you know things on tv you know uh we're told what values to espouse, how to behave as adults. And the more of this structure, their framework that we're given, and we start to adopt for ourselves, the more that that imaginative or that that connection to the other side fades. So by the time most of us are adults, we've like completely lost our connection to that ability. And that's really what it is, right? Like this born ability that we all have, but we somehow like, forget how to use it or we're told to turn it off or we're told to, you know, give it up, uh, give up childish things for these adult responsibilities. Yeah. That's such, I mean, we're, we're doing our, ourselves such a disservice by doing that as a culture. You I know, agree. The whole other side of life of experience of consciousness is this, this uh creative side right and and being able to engage that so i'm trying to dig a little bit more into that and find like childish pleasure in things um these days and engage more of you know that curiosity about mysticism and you know the unknown uh which is exactly what life is when you're a kid right um it's it's that way all the time yeah. <laughs> unknown <laughs> we just we just think that we know better <laughs> <laughs> I think we get caught sometimes in these these thought traps where we think we know everything, and um, because of that, we we turn off our ability to connect with um, other possibilities. Yeah, and it, it I'm with you a hundred percent. And um, I think research even shows when that happens in in our culture anyway, which is so sad to me. It really is because it's a loss of the not just the innocence, but of for me, it's a loss of the, the ultimate trust because death, which is releasing their deaths in life all the time, so endings, but death, the releasing of your body, the embodiment, is a part of life, the life process. Now, did I know that most of my life? No. I have the whole story of 2011 and my, me dying in the Amazon um, in psychedelic ceremony. So that woke me up, like not fast, but it woke me up. So... In that, just that Picasso said, um, is purported to, to have said, everything you can imagine is real. 
and children just know that. There's no question, right? And the mystics know it. The mystics know it. When I'm working with my teachers in Peru, which I do whenever I go, I'm connecting and doing work however I can when I'm there. And I even work with them from here. I just had a session with, with one of them last week. They just know it. They're like children. And they're these amazing beings, radiant beings. One of the pictures in my presentation for this Thursday night is one of the, the mystics that I worked with, a Caro shaman. And his energy body showed up on my picture. After I took the picture and looked at it, I was like, wah! And there it is, just radiating off of him. And they're so pure and, and authentic because it's just who they are. They honor Mother Earth, first and foremost. That's who they are. They're, they're earth keepers, Pampa Messiahs. And they just, when, when people ask in workshops, you know, how do we connect the mind to the heart? Like, what do we need to do? They literally stand there like this after it's interpreted because they don't even understand the question because that's just who they are and how they live. And I think that's how children are. I think that's who we are as children up until that certain point, to your point, in many places like like here in the Western world, in the U.S. for sure, we're conditioned and we're told that that's not possible. You can't be talking to people who aren't there. Your imaginary friend, oh, then, you know, we're going to take you to the doctor and take care of that, you know, with, with something. Like, that's, the mo that's really heartbreaking for me. It's like, oh, my gosh, what are we doing? And to adults, you know. So, but we do have to be grounded. So this is such a key part, right? We have to know that we have this body, that we're grounded here on earth as our home, and that these experiences are real as well, but we're not floating around with them all the time. Because then we're not here, and then we're not functioning in this middle world. And I only speak so clearly and articulately about this is because I wasn't grounded for so long in my life. I wasn't in my body. And you don't know what you don't know until you land there. So it's like a psychedelic experience can be... Um, Ketamine can be that way because it's a dissociative, right? So you actually go out of your body and then you come back in and it's like landing into the, you know, almost like trying to thread a, you know, a keyhole. Um, it's like, whoa, this huge energy ball then comes back into this, into this vessel. Sometimes it can be pretty shocking. I've had those experiences. So yeah, I'm with you on all that. Um, such incredible descriptions. I, I feel like I've I've had a lot of those experiences that you described. Um, and I was I was hoping we could talk a little bit about death specifically because that's another you know it's, a, it's another concept or construct that we're fed stories about in this culture and across the world they view death differently. Um, across the world they view mental health differently, right? You're talking about this disembodiment piece and where you can't be grounded and function on this plane. Well, that's a perfect uh, model and probably why psychedelic experiences have been coupled with psychosis is because, um, you know, people experiencing psychosis or, or schizoaffective or schizophrenia or anything like that, they, in other traditions, they're seen, they are seen to be people who can transition between realms. And so if you're, if you're in psych, uh, psychotic um, episode, um, you are not very grounded in this reality. You can't function um, within society's constructs because most of your energy is, is over in this other realm. But here in the West, we see that as 
well, we got to suppress their connection to this other realm. We got to suppress it so that they can function. But in other societies, they're held up on high and, and often seen as medicine people or healers or um, people who can give information from the other side that they can base their whole culture off of. Um, you said a couple of things about death and this this is sort of tied in with, with the stories I've been told about it. And I think it was psychedelic experience for me too, that broke a lot of those stories. Um, there's this interesting thing between the West and uh, other places uh, on the planet where we see death as something sad, something to be mourned, whereas other cultures see it as something that should be celebrated. Um, we see it as an end, whereas other cultures see it as a beginning to something else or a transition. Um, and you're right, you know, it's the most natural part of life. It's like the, I've said this a number of times on the podcast, death is the only thing that we cannot fail at in this yep. life. It's yep. the only thing. We're, we're going to do it perfectly. No matter and we know how. it's going to happen. And we know it's going to, it's the only <laughs> One thing, thing we can count on. Right. <laughs> and so all these sort of um, juxtapositions and, and that realization um, really got me to start questioning it. And then, boom, I've had these psychedelic experiences where I've been shown that it's not the end. And you, you mentioned something like that, an encounter with death down in Peru. I was hoping you could speak to maybe share what that experience was as best as you can and, and how that like, um, how that shifted your view on, on death as a concept. Yeah. Changed my life. Yeah. Changed my life completely in many ways. Um, it was 2011. I was with my school, the four wind society Alberto Violdo, a, a medical anthropologist, psychologist, and Marcela Lobos, his wife, um, the, the founders, uh, Alberto, the founder of the school. Um, up in the Andes, first time ever in Peru, 2011, within my shamanic training, got the call. Had, Peru was never on my radar um, and got the call to, to go, which surprised me. Um, so I went six months later, I was, I was heading with my school, with my group to the Andes. So spent two weeks in the Andes mountains, um, camping up at 16,000 feet, which I didn't live here in the mountains at that time. I lived at sea level. So big deal. Um, running into cows in the middle of the night when I had to get up to pee, you know, <laughs> from my tent, you know, we're literally camping and amazing, amazing, amazing ceremonies every day. The despacho ceremonies every day with the, with the mystics, the carol. Um, really intense, really amazing, life-changing in and of itself, that two weeks in the mountains. We were up um, camping for five days and on day trips for that the week before. When I was planning the trip and what was offered from my school, they offered an Amazon um, five-day gig after the, the mountain gig that I, was, that, that I was on. So my thinking was, hmm, well, my kids are old enough. They're okay. They're cool. One's in college. One's old enough in high school. They're okay to take care of themselves for long enough. I'd never been away more than 11 days. I'd been to India before that on a mission trip, um, but they were with their dad and they were younger. So I thought, I don't know if I'm ever coming back to Peru. Now I've been there nine times because this is part, this is one of my homes, but I didn't know that at the time. So I said, I'm going to go to the jungle. I connect to the plants. I connect to the animals. I love the jungle. I love the warmth. I love the earth in the jungle. So I'm going to go to the jungle as well. But it was also an ayahuasca uh, trip ceremony, ceremonial trip. And I had never experienced psychedelic drugs before that in my lifetime. 
you, you dove right in. <laughs> dove right in without having any clue, which is part of the whole grand scheme. Because <laughs> there's no way I would have had I had any clue. Um, and I was woefully unprepared, I will say, because I've been back. As you know, I just came back from this past February. And that is the third piece of this story. And I'd been back one time in between, literally to go back in ceremony with one of my dear Andean sisters, Vilma Pinedo Sanchez, to reclaim my soul parts that I had left there from 2011. So those steps back, come down from the mountain, head to the jungle. I was with my beloved at the time, and he went in that line at the airport to go home, come back to the U.S., and I went on to the jungle. And I did not have any desire even to, to participate in the ceremony. I really wanted to just be in the jungle. But there were 80 people in that group. And the ceremonies were 15 each, but 80 people is a lot of energy. And um, so I got really pulled into that energy, um, that energy flow of the ceremony and went to the teachings and just thought, I'll just learn what I can. And then I decided, oh, what the heck, I'll just have ceremony tonight, the first night. I, you know, I had one conversation with, <laughs> with one person from the office of the school and just uh, learned a little bit. And then I had one dinner conversation with some of my mountain friends at, over a dinner. And I sh the clue would have been after that dinner, and they were really expounding upon their ayahuasca ceremonial experiences, that when I got back to my room the night before we went to the high, high mountains and I started puking and throwing up all night, should have been the, the signal <laughs> that something's going on here because just from them sharing their stories, I was in it. Now, we're at altitude and I'm from sea level, so there was the thought that I had altitude sickness, even though we had been there for a week already. We were a little higher up in Cusco, but so that was the thinking, oh, I must have eaten something wrong. I have altitude sickness, whatever. Looking back and connecting back into it, that's what was happening. I was full in on a ceremony just from that energetic exchange because that's how sensitive I am. Didn't know it at the time. So first ceremony is a rebirthing. And it was okay. It was, I, I let everybody know. I let my teacher know. Marcella, she was beautiful. She took such beautiful care of me, connected to the ayahuascaro, let him know I had never had any experience, that I'm very sensitive. I eat chocolate. I stay up all night. You know, I mean, it's like I'm, I'm living energy, you know, plant right here. I'm like, okay, yeah, you're talking to me. So it was a rebirthing. And it really, the way that I could compare it to anything was as if I had drunk, and I don't really drink alcohol, but I had extensively as a younger person, like three glasses of champagne or something, you know, just sort of lightheaded, floaty, a beautiful rebirthing. But I had done that with shamanic journey. I didn't have to take anything to do that kind of work because that's just how I work, drumming or rattling. So it was okay. Next day, some integration for about an hour with the teacher, Alberto, at that point. Interesting awarenesses of my body. They had the intention of it being embodiment night. So it was with Sachamama, the serpent, really connecting to the, the physical body and the physical process. So really felt a lot from that. I was so ungrounded, I realized afterwards, after I really integrated from that experience, that I sort of lost. I was not in my body even. I wasn't back in my body. So I was like, I'll do it again tonight. Why not? And this time I didn't tell anybody. I didn't remind them. And I went to a different ayahuascaro 
who was described as the one to bring the dragon into the room and not for the faint of heart. Oh, I'll just go to him. Sure. And it's Jaguar night. So it's death night. So I write in my journal, which I have, Jaguar, show me the way beyond death. Right before the ceremony. That's my intention. Not having any awareness that I would have to die first to be able to see the way beyond death, right? Just so it was, um, it was a hell ride. There was nothing short of really, really deep, intense, and massive suffering. And um, I'm here talking to you about it now because I'm so grateful that I'm here mm-hmm. and that I've moved through and that I had and have had the support all the way through. And it is ketamine in the end, just last year. So nine years out from that experience, eight years out, that healed me from my extreme fear and trauma from psychedelics from that 2011 experience. Ketamine moved me through it last year. So this is why I'm so passionate. One of the reasons why I'm so passionate about this medicine, ketamine, which is the legal medicine here in the U.S. for us to be able to use. Lots of reasons, but that's, the, that's one of the big ones. Um, so really, I was pretty clueless overall, just as a spirit being um, in 2011 in that death experience. Um, I didn't even know enough to, I didn't invocate, I didn't call in help. That wasn't my practice. And I hadn't learned that yet in my life. So there I was, alone. Even though I was in a room with 14 other people, there was an ayahuasca girl. There wasn't really anyone else supporting us, though. So that's the other piece that this story is so important for people to understand why I'm so passionate about set and setting. And I am a researcher, so I have that background too, but not in ketamine and in psychedelic work and clinical drug studies that I was doing. But it is not optional for me in terms of psychedelic work being ceremonial because I've been there on that other side. And I don't want anyone to ever have to go through the hell that I literally went through. And so in that process, pretty early on, I knew I was dying. It was very clear. And there was nothing that I could do to stop it. So just real quick, um, sorry to interrupt, but uh, I think a lot of uh, listeners probably hear about, you know, quote unquote, bad trips or scary trips in the news. And, um, you know, I said a number of times on this, podcast that there are no bad trips there's challenging trips that we can um that oftentimes give us the most valuable information about ourselves um but that's that's about all the terminology that's used and i'm wondering if you if you feel comfortable with it if you could describe for the audience and for me too like what are some of the the imagery that came up that was so scary like what are some of the things that people you know see and experience when they, when they associate it with being challenging or bad or hard. Yeah. So I'll say two things just about that, just as the overarching frame as a clinician and as a Western licensed healthcare professional and working with the indigenous as well. That's where I do my ceremonies outside of ketamine because ketamine is um, legal here. Um, I think that there are bad trips. So I will just challenge you on that because if something is not hold, there's a possibility of bad trips. If something's not held with set and setting, if dosage isn't right, those are the three, right? Dosage, set and setting, it can be a bad trip. So mine was a combination. My soul was guiding me. I know that. And I have a manuscript for this story because it's big. It's just like overarching in my whole life. 
and I and I have so much passion about it. And I'll share after this if we have time. I don't know. I don't know what you're tracking the time. We got about an hour. We're doing okay. Good. Cool. We got time. So you know, my trip back in this past February was beyond divine, mystical, and as life changing as well. So I got to experience the gifts that the pieces that were missing for me in 2011 to be able to be held in this death experience. I was dying no matter what, because I was all in Jaguar show me the way beyond death, but there are ways to be held in that process so that you come back with grace, right? You integrate. Yes. I'm also extremely passionate about integration because it's as important as the experience for sure, because we are these bodies and we do have these brains. So we need to be able to make sense of how it's living inside of us on all levels, body, mind, spirit, and what do we do with it now in our lives? It wasn't just a fun, you know, this is really, I mean, it's that sacred for me. So my visions, literally, I don't, I don't know time. It was um, outside of time completely. Um, can you still see me? Oh yeah. You're good. I lost you. I don't know why I lost you. Um, so I'm just going to keep going. I don't know why I lost you, but um, so early on, however many minutes, I don't know. I knew I was in a death process and um, what I was like, how did you know? I could feel that my body was leaving. Mm. I knew that I wasn't going to have a body anymore. And um, it was a knowing mm. and, and I was vomiting and that's part of the, that can be part of, you know, the ayahuasca experience. Um, it was just, it was a knowing, it was a clear knowing and it was early on that I knew it. So um, as it progressed, the, the room was pretty wild. People were screaming and yelling and it was pretty out of control. So I've sensed that in the room, just like, whoa, what is going on? I, as I felt the life force leave my body, literally, and figured I couldn't sit up anymore. You know, ideally you're sitting up so you can receive the Icaros. I don't even remember hearing Icaros. I remember those are the songs of the ayahuasca. That's where the medicine, that's the vehicle. You know, I blow into leaves and other things. The, and sometimes I sing in my sessions, not Icaros necessarily, but this is the Shipibo medicine through the song and I couldn't even sit up I just collapsed basically on my mat and the dragon did come to me twice right up to my face before I collapsed right there and I just told it to fuck off mm. because I didn't know anything I didn't know to embrace the medicine I didn't know to embrace what would show up because I didn't even know about the darkness at that time that was all me <laughs> and the dragon was just showing me my mirror I didn't know any of that. So that was scary. It was really scary. And as I just continued to degrade, knowing that I didn't have much time left, I begged and pleaded. And that's where I learned to ask for help. That was the first time I ever learned to ask for help from the spirit world. And I was asking everybody I could think of at that point, anybody I could think of, my teachers, my, you know, and then I went into such sadness, accepting and knowing that I wouldn't see my kids again. And I wouldn't see my beloved, my cats. 
I couldn't believe it, you know. So I went through those stages all the way through, like total denial. Like this cannot be happening in the middle of the Amazon jungle. I did not sign up for this, did I? <laughs> Apparently I did because it's really happening. So in those last pieces that I remembered of that section, I screamed. I didn't have any physical energy, but I screamed out for the ayahuascaro. Orlando! And I remember, and I don't know how loud it actually was, but I do did have awareness that I did use my voice. And it was like this, this message that really came through, like, yeah, using your voice is really powerful and really important. And I did feel his presence come over at that point. I don't know if he physically did, because I couldn't see anything at this point. I had no, my senses were all over the place, and I had no sight through my eyes. Plus, we're in the middle of the Amazon jungle, and there's no light, not even a candlelight. So it was intentionally dark. Felt him for a few seconds, some protection. Just felt like some protection came in and then gone as fast as it came. And then I just went into deep grief and sadness. And then I said, I'm sorry. I just asked for forgiveness for those I wasn't going to see anymore who, who I just loved so dearly. And I don't know if I had physical tears, but I was certainly crying inside. And then it was at that point that acceptance came. And as acceptance came, my spirit did com go completely out of my body with my awareness. I saw my body down below. And that's when the peace came. I was just going to say, isn't, uh, isn't that experience um, so freeing at the end, right? When you, when you go through it and... Uh you come to that acceptance piece around death. It's just like, oh my goodness, I've been fearing this thing my whole life and now I don't have to fear it. Like that's such a huge weight off my shoulders. Absolutely. Um, and not something that you'd ever ask for to have death before death, right? Mm -hmm. Like, but at the same time, now I do. Now I welcome it in. It's different. You do. Um, because it is empowering. And there's so much beauty in those realms to be able to go there and to be invited there is such an honor. Mm -hmm. And I, this is the most sacred work that I could possibly do with anyone, whether I'm doing it with mediumship readings and I'm connecting them to their dead people, what the, the, the magic and the miracles and the wonder that happens in those sessions, it's inexplicable and it's such an honor on my part. Or if I'm sitting with someone who is actually dying and ready to leave their body, which I haven't done super extensively. I was a pediatric nurse early on, but I have sat with the dying who've called me in for ceremony and to be with them. And that is the greatest honor. And in my shamanic work and training, we went through death rituals, literally, where we could lift our energy field. And I do that as well. I bring people out if it's called for on a, on a death journey. Um, so, and it's real. I, I take them out of their bodies if I'm called with a lot of support from the spirit world um, in a, in a death spiral, but they're always going to come back to their body when we're, when we're doing it that way in journey. So that relief, that peace, that quiet was beautiful. And I saw my body and in an instant, which there is no time in these realms, right? And in the psychedelic world of ayahuasca anyway, it's a little different than ketamine, but 
my body instantaneously got absorbed by the earth right before my eyes. She just drank me up and just embraced me. And it was amazing. And then it went to black. And I don't know for how long. I don't know if I went unconscious because you can become unconscious from ayahuasca um, depending on all the variables, right? Um, I mean, that's not typical. And my, my experience in February was divine and the furthest thing from that. So really part of my experience was that I was not living consciously. And I certainly wanted to die consciously after that experience. So I died con- unconsciously in that experience and it was hell. So, so really my passion about these medicines and about energy medicine and just work to connect to our own souls through my art, whatever, whatever ways, whatever vehicles, just go into the grocery store and connecting with the person who's helping me at the counter in a way that's kind and gentle and I see you. Thank you. You know, it's, it's, it is life transforming in that I don't, I wouldn't say I don't have I don't think I'm without fear about death because I'm human. I think that would be ridiculous for me to say that. However, what I can say is that I sure know that I want to be conscious when I do end up leaving this body for good. And I hope it's in a long decades away because I feel like I have a lot of work to do here and I hope I'm vital and, and able to do that. So I came back. I don't know how long, you know, initially when I would tell this story, people would ask me, well, did they have to resuscitate you? And you know, I'm like, I don't know. I was in, I was dead in the Amazon. I have no idea. And I wasn't laughing then, but when I came back and I'm so grateful that I can laugh about it now and so grateful for the experience. I don't want anyone to have to experience that, but hopefully I've experienced it for others and I'll share this story like we are now. So when I came back, there was a voice. It wasn't guidance. So I was being taught in like in vitro, <laughs> you know, like in the test tube. I was in the test tube, test tube in that room in the Maloka in, in the Amazon, breathe. So it was an actual voice that said breathe. And the way that I describe it is I didn't know what I was. I didn't, you know, I just remembering taking a breath that was as if I had drowned. And I know the body because I'm a nurse and, and a healthcare practitioner and and love anatomy and physiology. And it was as if my alveoli in my lungs were flat. And when I took that breath, the, the breath just filled up every single one of those pockets and, and just my, my lungs fully. And then from there, it was, it was guidance. So it was not a voice, but it was clear guidance and it was directive. And I had never had that before in my life, except for the call to Peru. I just wasn't aware of it. Like all of a sudden Peru's on my radar and I'm, oh, I'm going to Peru. Whoa. I know that now. I know when I get the call. So the directives were fold up your Mesa, which is my medicine bundle, grab your stuff, get up and get out of here. And I didn't even know what I was, who I was, you know, I'm like feeling to see what, what's up. And um, somehow that made sense to me. They said, look up. I looked up, there was a bright light, blinding light. And um, I remember just at some point, and I don't know when, again, because there's no time in, this, in these realms, thinking, and it might have been even the next day in integration, I don't know. Oh, it's a full moon and there's a skylight in the building. Got it. Well, I looked back at the records of the day 
and my teacher, Alberto, the next day when I gave the synopsis of my experience because I was in shock the next day. I didn't know what happened. I said I died. There was the moonlight, full moon, and the skylight, and that's basically all that I know. I don't really know anything else. And he looked at me and he said, Christina, there was no full moon last night. It was a new moon. And I literally went back to the room because I didn't believe him and I was pissed because I was still completely in the process. And there was no skylight in the building, in the roof, and it was in fact a new moon on that day in that year. So I did get out. Um, the ayahuasca girl met me in the middle of the maloca because I knew enough that I wasn't supposed to leave before the ceremony was done, but I was listening. It was like, I got, I'm listening. I'm getting out of here. And he met me in the middle. It's pitch black, but I could feel his presence. And either psychically or however, I got the sense that he was asking me if I was okay. And I said, no, but I'm leaving. And he blew tobacco on me and cinnamon, I think. And then I left. And the first night of ceremony, I actually got walked back to my, um, to my um, tombo. And the second night, I told the guy at the door, I got it. I'm fine. I can make it myself. I don't know how I made it back, but I did. So that was the essence of the experience. And it took me two years to be able to tell this story this way. It was two years before I could tell it without breaking out in absolute tears, hysterically crying, because I was in such shock, because I didn't know what happened. Thank you for sharing it today. And with me and with the, all the listeners out there, you know, um, you know, I too have had a couple, I've had quite a few, um, you know, death experiences, um, some in extreme sports, some in altered states, um, some in meditation, and uh, some in, in dream realms, you know, and uh, people often hear, you know, psychedelics are great for ego death and things like that. Well, and then, you know, uh, there's a percentage of people that have those sort of death experiences and it just scares the shit out of them even more, you know. Right. Um, but for me, you know, those the death experience, um, you know, I, I hear how it taught you and I was reflecting on how it's been a teacher to me and, and it was really the first opportunity, well, it wasn't the first opportunity, but the first time that I gave into the opportunity to surrender completely, um, you know, and, you know, to, I, I still, you know, even to this day, when I, when I go through death experiences, I still go through that same checklist, you know, that yeah. you're mentioning like, okay, will my wife be okay? Will my dogs be okay? Well, you know, will these projects go on without me? Will everything be okay as long as I'm gone? And then I get to the, to the end and I'm like, everything's going to be fine. No matter what, like even if I die right now, it, you know, I know that I'm going through an ego death, but even if my body dies right now, everybody knows that I love them, right? So I'm still going through these checklists and it gets easier and easier for me the more work I do. Um, and again, this is where jujitsu comes in too, because it's such, uh, I mean, we're literally, um, I don't know how much you know about jujitsu, but we're, we're literally- I don't. So it's not like a traditional striking martial art, like karate or anything like that. It's uh, ground fighting. And we're wearing, um, you know, big heavy jackets and clothing. Um, you know, it looks like a karate gi, but it's much more heavy duty. And we're fighting on the ground. It looks a lot like wrestling, but the techniques are um, submissions. So you can uh, win by, uh, hype, you know, hyperextending a joint past its, its 
point, its breaking point, um, breaking a bone or um, choking somebody unconscious, right? Wow, so, intense. And, yeah, and so we're literally doing this in um, you know sparring matches with each other every single day, sometimes hundred times in a in a in a training session where you literally come face to face confronting death. It's like it's either me or him. Um, whoever gets the finishing move, which in a, in a real fight would could potentially mean dismemberment or death. Like we're simulating that, and we still have to go through all the emotions and and all those questions that come up. And so I'm very grateful for a practice like that because I get to voluntarily every day put myself in those situations to to again. It goes back to relationship, right? Like I'm I'm. I'm establishing and forming and creating this relationship with death so that, you know, I'm acclimated so well to situations like that, that in, in the midst of danger, I can remain calm. Um, or, or I know that there's always a way out, or I know that even if I die, it's going to be okay. Um, yeah. and psychedelics, I think are such a profound tool for the, you know, everyday average individual to be able to tap into that experience, even if you're not spiritual at all. Absolutely. Um, it's a fantastic tool to just be able to tap into uh, some of those deepest questions. Like what is death? What happens afterwards? Um, I feel like I've, I've been shown that and I feel very grateful for, for that because I come back from it and, and reintegrate. And now, you know, I move through life in a different way where even if I'm not 100% sure what happens after I will, after this body passes away, I am, pretty damn sure in my heart of hearts that uh, my existence will not end. And therefore, you know, I don't have to fear it as much. And it's like I was saying before, such a big weight off my shoulders to be able to move through life without that fear of um, mortality. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. I think death is the greatest teacher. Greatest. Yeah. Um, so I was hoping we could talk a little bit about go back to um, you know spirits, the spirit realm, um, entities, and uh, landscapes of the spiritual realm, right? Um, mm. So when I've been through some ayahuasca experiences, sometimes I've found myself in what has been called in the literature the tryptamine palace, right, where you find these undulating walls of geometric patterns and shapes, but they seem to be rooms filled with different. Uh, entities, different consciousness, uh, animal, plant, uh, human, all sorts of spirits. Um, and so I've seen a little bit of like what some of these spirit realms could resemble. Um, and I haven't, you know, because because my skill set is not as finely tuned as yours, I haven't been able to, I guess, put my finger on uh, what a spirit, you know, looks like or, or you know, feels like or anything like that and so for our listeners I was hoping you could describe like what what do spirit realms look like what do spiritual entities resemble I know a lot of us like to um, anthropomorphize and put human characteristics on some of these things but they're not human um, but for us to like sort of make sense of like what is a spirit and and find some belief in it for maybe people who don't have those experiences it's really hard because it's it's like this thing out there in you know 3d space that we we can't you know compartmentalize like we like to do yeah and it's 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 challenging for me too 
to be able to articulate it yeah. and to walk in the world because sometimes, not always, but um, it's, uh, it's not my job to convince anybody that everything is a spirit and that there is a spirit world. Not my job. However, that's who I am. That's how I walk in the world. Um, and those who come to work with me in whatever way, uh, colleagues, um, clients, this is the basis. This is, this is who I am. So I'm talking to spirits all the time. So there's really two sort of um, pieces of that in terms of spirits here in the embodied world, in this middle world. So in the shamanic realms, you know, upper world, middle world, lower world. So we're in this middle world, this manifested world where energy becomes things, you know. Um, and then there's spirit across the veil in the spirit realm. So for me, the way that I walk in the world is everything, and this is quantum physics. So, you know, this is no, no surprise and not relegated to um, those who believe that the world is animated um, and not just believe it, but live it. it, it, it that's the reality. Um, everything has, everything is energy. So for me, the way that lives is that everything does have a spirit. So I do talk to my plants and um, I'm not vegetarian in terms of eating because the plants are the same really as the animals for me. That could be a whole nother conversation with people, but it's the plants are as sacred as the animals. They don't have eyes that we know are eyes, but they absolutely have eyes. Um, they have chakra systems, you know, the whole, the whole thing, energetic systems, and, you know, it's called different things in different cultures. But so everything is animated, everything is alive, and I have that awareness the way that I walk. So that's part of my challenge because people ask me all the time after I've worked with them and spirits have come through and either given them messages or have helped them with healing or or whatever process they're in. And they'll ask me later on if we work again, or if it's someone that I know that I got the okay to work with them as well, because I do ask if it's, if there are friends or people that I know, family members that want some work, I ask the question, is this going to be of the highest good for me to work with this person? And I get a clear yes or no. And I, if it's a no, it's a no. And then I send them somewhere else. So when I'm having, having these conversations after working with people, they'll say, well, so when you were talking to my mom, you know, and I, the first thing I say is I don't remember anything because one is I have an agreement with spirit that I hold on to none of it. It's, it's flowing through me. Like a confidentiality agreement. Um, it, in spirit. Yeah. Yeah. It's also um, flowing through me so that I can walk in the world as Chris. <laughs> Because yeah. if I'm walking around with everybody's information, I'm not going to be walking around in the world at all. I will be, I won't be here. I will be. And I think that is, would be one of my definitions of mental illness is, is people that aren't be able to clear it and flow it because people, you know, the spirits are talking all the time. So, um, so that's the first piece in that. I don't hold it. However, if they, I can go back into it. So if they're wondering about something from a previous session or a work that we've done, I can say, okay, hang on. And I'll go back into it and, and sort of pull it back up. And it's not, it's not living inside of me because I'm flowing. You know, we, we strive to be that hollow bone. And all of us can be this. 
it's just that my work happens to be in expansion of consciousness for others um, and expansion of awareness and fulfilling living, you know, let's, let's live with joy, even in the midst of a pandemic and social unrest, which is necessary and unjust world and, and all of those things. So there's that in this realm in terms of um, what they look like. I feel and sense. So there have been times where I see them. I can actually see them. That's how energy appears. And those are few and far between. I have to be really deep in. If I'm really immersed in nature, I'll start to see with my eyes actual energy. When I moved to a new house in the Chicago area, which was on two acres and in nature, I saw energy flitting around the whole house. I was like, whoa. And it's, a, it's freaky when you're not used to it. So I don't necessarily invite that in. And my teachers, we've talked a lot about that. And they're like, that's not your primary way. It's okay. You don't have to invite that in. So I sense and I feel and I know. So I actually, when I'm actually talking to spirits, when I've asked them to come in on behalf of someone else, when, like if I was working with you as a client right now and we're, we're, we're meeting and talking, I look to the left because that's how the spirits come in for me. And I'm actually inviting them in and talking to them and having a conversation. So it's another kind of relationship. So I'm sensing and just knowing and trusting and imagining sometimes because I don't know who's going to come. And then it's trust. Because then you're on the line. It's like, okay, I'm sensing. Because you don't know. I don't know who's really here. I don't. It's as much a mystery to me as, as you know, the person I'm working with. Oh, I'm sensing a sister. Okay, yep. You know, they're nodding. You know, really intensely. Ah, oh, you know, and then it goes from there. So that's how energy is for me in this realm. When I'm connecting across the veil, when I am out of my own body, so I'm there with them, which I also do and psychedelics are that way, particularly ketamine. Ayahuasca for me is a very embodied experience, by the way. I'm in my body fully. I'm not floating around. Um, so, but ketamine's the opposite. It's a dissociative. So I'm up and out of my body while it's being so sacredly cared for, for whoever is holding that set and setting for me here in this plane. In that way, the way that it, the way that I experience it is, um, I can actually see and sense the spirits sort of the way that you described um, a flowing. I don't know who it was you were describing. My great grandma came to me and she comes, she's here right now and she's here with me all the time. Now I'm getting to know her, which is super cool. And she's one from Greece, but she initially came to me um, through a ketamine experience actually. Um, and she was wearing a flowing white gown dress and it was blowing in the wind and I could see her face and she was literally talking to me so uh, that is different and that's not usually how it is for me unless I have some other kind of support and guidance either really really deep journey with someone else holding it for me or a tool like ketamine um, so that's that's the 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 simplest way for me to describe how the spirits show up Okay. And you mentioned um, almost uh, as far as like landscape, like three distinct levels, the, mm. the underworld, the, this world, and then the higher world. Um, I got a, um, I got a, what is it? A spirit animal card reading once from a friend of mine who I trusted. And um, it was interesting because I had never really, you know, I'd always just thought like, oh, we just have one spirit animal, like mm -hmm. never it is, right? And she said, oh no, you have three, one for each realm. 
and they have different meanings for you. And what was revealed to me was that I had a spider um, underworld uh, spirit. I had a bear for my um, everyday world. And then the third one that came up, the higher realm was a blank card. And um, we both looked at each other and I was like, well, what does that mean? And she says, well, what comes to your heart as that third animal? It's sort of like you get, you get a choice um, but also what comes naturally. And right away, I saw a dragon. Um, and not not the way you were speaking of it earlier, uh, the serpent and the snake, but like a, like a, a dragon from, uh, you know, Japan or something like that. Or Japanese mm -hmm. mythical. And um, I still have yet to un unlock what those different um, animals mean for me on the various realms. But I'm fascinated to know, you know, I have this feeling that I'm, you know, as a as an embodied being right now, I still maintain connection to the underworld as well as the higher world, uh, even though I'm living consciously in this realm right now. Um, and if I engage with either of those two, there's a lot of learning that can happen from both of those. Um, I don't know. From your experience, what does what would what would those cards tell you about a person? I guess, and I don't want to turn this into like a card reading session or anything, but we could do that. I'm just curious about <laughs> I am right here, actually. I just pulled, I pulled three for me <laughs> right here today. You got to me. Um, rabbit. Electric eel. Love it. And brown bear. Yeah. Um, and these are tools. You know, cards are tools, just like we have so many tools, and we don't need any of them. Sure. We connect to spirit directly all you know, all the time if we're open to that. And tools are wonderful. Yeah, the it's tools are hard to, the translators. Yeah, and, and um, make things easier. It's hard to cook without tools in the kitchen. <laughs> I mean, we can, you know, cook over fire, camping. You have basics, but um, tools are great. I'm grateful for them, but we, we, can, we don't need them. So how to interpret yours with the different worlds? So what I can say about that is the way it lives for me is that animals are showing up all the time in our lives and some are more animals that are truly with us for our lifetime and we have that sense as we connect in with them of who those are and then some there are animals all over the place from ants insects to i had a tarantula in my living room a few weeks ago after i came back from the amazon wow whole another story in and of itself the tarantula at my tombow in the Amazon from February, this past February, uh, was outside of my tombow in living in a empty tree stump. And I didn't see, and it was a him. I just knew right away it was a male essence. And I didn't see him until the third ceremony. There were five ceremonies that we did consecutively. And um, yeah, low, and he was a protector for me, showing me he was a male protector, which was very, um, important and very meaningful to me. Um, and before that, by the way, I'd seen Anaconda for real with my actual eyes mm. on the trail after my second ceremony with one of my facilitators. So I had a witness. <laughs> we saw it together. But weeks after the trip, literally tarantula showed up in my living room here. And I knew he was reminding me Mm -hmm. that I was protected, that I was safe, that I had a male protector. And um, it was really scary that a tarantula was in my living room. But I talked to him, thanked him. And then um, 
with my daughter, we came up with a plan uh, for over about a half an hour's time <laughs> and, um, and got it into a container and, and brought him outside and, and off he went. He turned back around and faced the door <laughs> after I let him go. He turned right back and I was like, oh no, I got it. Thank you. You can go on your way. So the way animals live for me is they're always in our lives and some are absolutely connected to us. So for, for me, for example, bison is a huge one. And I'm from Chicago, so there were bison roaming that land um, indigenously. Of course there were, but there sure aren't now at this point. But when I go to uh, Peru and my dear sister Vilma sees me, she very often will say, Christina, and giving, ready to give me a big hug. And she says, I can see the, the whole herd behind you. And she literally sees them because <laughs> they're with me. So there are those, and owl is another one for me. So I often am painting. Um, owls actually are one of the animals that are coming through me all the time. Buffalo is a big one for me too. Uh, yeah. Partially because I'm uh, CU Buff alumni from Boulder. Ah. But um, also, yeah, just being drawn to the, the buffalo embodies like the spirit of freedom and spirit of um, exploration of the West for me and curiosity and uh, wisdom. And so that one shows up a lot for me too. Cool. So I would say for you, then buffalo bison would be one of your animals that may well be, and I wouldn't, I would have to go into a journey, you know, and, and go into a trance to it be not Chris speaking right now, but my sense is from what you've just described that bison buffalo is one of your animals for you, for your life, because it sounds like you really connect to it. And, um, and they're there for you. And then the others come and go. It depends on what we're going through. These three um, that appear today through my cards, none of those three are regular. There are bunnies in the backyard and I'm talking to them all the time, but they're not ones that I'm deeply, deeply connected to in my lifetime. So I don't do the middle world animal or the, um, the three world um, animals that way, but you know, different people practice different ways and it's meaningful in different ways and it can be different from client to client. I work differently, but uh, the way that I would say for you is um, again, it comes down to relationship. So just building the relationship with those animals that showed up through that reading and that you got this open possibilities for the upper world. What a beautiful thing to invite that in. Who did you say it ended up? It ended up being for the upper. Uh, dragon. Dragon, right, right. Because Mark so, not a real animal, but maybe one point, at one point in history it existed, but it was a mythical thing. And I said dragon right away, and she said, "That's what I saw in you too." Was dragon in the higher realm? Um, actually, have an interesting experience with the spider like you did you know after, right after I got this reading you know I didn't think much of it and then I went and sat in a peyote ceremony and I'm sitting there in front of the fire and I feel this thing like itching at me on my leg and it just won't go away um at first I thought it was psychosomatic and I'm just like it's just in your mind so I reach up my pant leg and I pull this spider out and I, I flung it like towards the the fire and it landed in the sand between me and the fire a real spider um and then it turned and faced me and came right back in my direction, uh, straight V-line. And I had to, you know, get it out of there again. But I thought it was a hallucination. I turned to the guy next to me and I'm like, did you see that? And he said, oh, yeah, I saw exactly what happened with that. And so it's, it's amazing that you, you say that. Like animals show up in our life in so many ways. And it's just a matter of like, are we attuned to that or are we not? Like, what's the message there? I feel like 
you know, every experience that we have in our waking or altered consciousness is a mystical experience. Each and every With one. You. Yeah, each and every With one you. is. Even when we get that food poisoning and it's legitimate food poisoning, like there's a reason why that happened. Like maybe that's to prevent you from going on a car ride that would have killed you later that night. Or maybe, you know, whatever it is, we, we attach these judgments that say, well, I wish it wasn't this way or it was bad or whatever. But each and every experience has a level of mysticism connected to it, a level of um, structural knowing from this oneness that we we don't know what the plan is and the universe has no obligation to tell us what that plan is uh, it shows us every day I love that the universe has no obligation to tell us what the plan is I love that <laughs> I mean, it, it shows us different pathways but it um, it allows us the choice you know yeah and we do have the free will so that's the beauty of of humanity right is that we do have choice and I do think that we have multiple destinies, but the choice allows for us to choose. I don't think it's set. I do think we come in with contracts and that always boggles my, tr truly my mind, my human mind. It's like, oh, okay, can you just line up and give me this, the folder, the file folder with the contracts that I came in with so I can deal with it? <laughs> Doesn't work that way. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you completely. And I do think that in the realm of animals and just whatever shows up, but animals particularly, um, they're talking to us and they're telling us. And so I, I ask them, you know, I mean, when that tarantula showed up in the living room, I didn't even know there were tarantulas in this part of Colorado. I knew they were in Southern Colorado and maybe, I mean, I did look it up then eventually and it said, yeah, they could be, but I have never heard anybody here mm -hmm. in this area say they ever saw a tarantula and it was a tarantula. I mean, I got a picture of it next to my cord. So there's like some, you know, some frame of reference of this tarantula. So I knew, I knew in that moment as petrified as I was that this tarantula had found me here, that it was here to, to tell me and remind me. And I, I didn't get it right away, but I got it pretty quickly. I'm like, okay, got it. You're, you're reminding me at a time when I really needed it. There was something that then unfolded the next day that it was clear that he had shown up mm -hmm. to, to calm me and let me know that it was okay. Cause it sure didn't feel okay the next morning. And, um, and he was fast. Let me tell you, he was not just sitting. He sat still, but then when I just was talking to him, and at one point, he just started running around. I was like, holy, he is fast. So then just calming myself again and then talking to him again and saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for coming and showing me, and now I'm going to escort you out. <laughs> but, I, you know, whether it's hawks, eagles, flying overhead, you know, I mean, these are the magical I'm with you. Life is ceremony is the way that I have adopted life since I've really delved into the spirit realm. And there are times when I'm, in, I'm suffering for sure because I'm human. And it's, it feels really, it's painful these four months to, 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 be, to know how many souls are crossing over all at the same time and how do I be of service with that and the social unrest and the, my daughter and I were marching a week ago, you know, with, with murders happening from, you know, um, in, in places with people that, that it's flat out murder and just the pain of all of that. I experience all of it and I experience all of it deeply. 
and at the same time I really do at least by the end of the day if it's not during the day <laughs> it's not that way all the uh, during the day for sure calm and oh yeah it's all going to be no I'm human I take my rescue remedy <laughs> I drink I bought a case of chamomile tea from Trader Joe's the other day I was like give me a case I think I need a case um, but by the end of the day I, I, I have to go to bed in peace because if I don't come back into my body in the morning I want to know that I've that I've crossed in that way and in that realm at peace with myself and at peace with all those around me and with love and um, just knowing that um, it, there is alignment, even if it doesn't make sense. And even if it seems out of control and when things fall apart is definitely on my bedside table in my room right now from Pemash children, um, because that's what it feels like right now with, the world and um and even you know it reflects back in your personal yeah um i want you to to um, imagine this this just popped in my head but um so we're talking about and i do want to um get back to uh, covid and and social unrest that's going on because that definitely needs to be spoken about but this thing popped in my head where you know we as humans from our human-centric uh lens we can oftentimes view ceremony as a way to become disembodied or to experience the spiritual realm. Um, but what if we, I mean, you hear this also, you also hear this phrase, we're spirits uh, having a human experience, right? But what if it's also uh, possible that we are actual spiritual beings conducting a lifelong ceremony, an 80 to 100 year ceremony in which we are disembodied from our spiritual selves and embodied into a human existence, almost like the reverse uh, of what we think is happening. But rather, like you said, life is ceremony. This is um, a ceremonial space that we just see as being real, right? When you're, in, when you're deep in a psychedelic experience, it seems more real than anything that you've ever experienced. Maybe that is the real reality and this is just a ceremonial projection or vision that we're having i think so that's yeah. my answer to that wow. um and believe me day to day you know my my prayer and my wish as this being that i am is to be in touch with that from moment to moment but i am human and i do feel pain because all humans feel pain and I do feel suffering. So I, I really have to go back to that quiet place um, because I do hold the eagle and condor vision. I do see, as you pointed out, we have these different worlds. These are multiple dimensions. I do experience the multiple dimensions all at the same time, not in psychedelic experience. That's pretty challenging to explain to someone who's not experiencing that. Um, and I go back to Roger Ebert, who was a movie critic. Do you know who Roger, D Roger Ebert was? Do you know his, his last words? No. Don't quote me, but he said them to his wife. Um, it's all a hoax. Right well, before he died. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm right there. And I'm also practicing to be this being in all these multiple realms, which I absolutely know um, exists um, because the practice for me 
is really to accept just as you described and as I described in the death experiences, once the acceptance came, the peace came and the beauty was beyond what we could describe. So to really be living the acceptance that all these feelings, even emotions exist as a gift of the human experience, but I'm not them. And most of the time I'm there. But when I'm going through something that's in the shamanic way, it's initiations. And I know it's why I'm here to move through them. So that's really my goal is to keep moving. <laughs> like I'm not looking back. I want to keep moving and I want to do it in relationship. This is, this is absolutely, I know one of the reasons that I've come here. I don't know for anyone else. It seems to me that it would be important for everyone, but I can only speak for myself in the end, right? Is to have these experiences in relationship. Because if it goes outside of a relation of, of relationships, one or multiple, it's not the doing. And so for me, it's doing it within that experience, not solo. That's not why I'm here. I'm here to love. I'm here to be in relationship, relationships, and to move through it. So to abandon that in any way really is devastating for me. So that's really on a human level just to be completely vulnerable and, and really deep into it is, is where I am and what my work is um, at, at present and, and, and onward. Um, and I'm sorting it as I go. What does it look like? And really with grace. Yeah. That's, that's my prayer, with grace. And we all live in all these dimensions at all times, whether we are aware of it or not. But in particular, you know, and this brings me back to COVID and, and social unrest, in particular during this time in the last, you know, four to six months, um, almost in the sense that COVID is a tool, that Black Lives Matter movement is a tool, these tools come into existence, come into our awareness, come into the world um, to give us, you know, those opportunities to to take a look at ourselves, or to change things or to, to, um, to deal with parts of ourselves, right? So we're living in all these domains, all these dimensions. And right now, boom, we're hit with like two super major things that draw for most of us draws all of our energy from all the other dimensional spaces into this dimension. Right. And then another thing that has come from that is, um, and it, you know, the timing with having you on here is perfect because, uh, we're, for the majority of us, we've been confronted with these questions around mortality with the COVID thing and with uh, rioters and, um, you know, things like that and, and police brutality and all these things. Um, we are asking ourselves individually, like, what does death mean to me? Why am I afraid of death? Um, all these things, but also collectively, like, what does death mean to us? What are we willing to accept as an acceptable type of death, an acceptable number of deaths? Um, are we willing to let the economy go down completely down the drain um, and let people die or, or the other way, you know, are, do we want to keep the economy going and, and allow for more opportunity for more death? So I think right now in the world, Mother Earth is talking to us and really, you know, holding that mirror up with, with a, a death tint on it where we're all seeing through this lens, um, what it means to be alive and hopefully come out of it having more gratitude for being alive and seeing the beauty in life as opposed to 
just getting locked into this um, this uh, survival mechanism and not not breaking back out of that into higher states of consciousness. Yeah, I am with you a hundred percent on all of that, and and the gifts of being witness to self. I think this is one of the massive gifts of, of the psychedelics, which is why it's so important for me to, to be experiencing them and to be involved in them with, as a therapist in ceremony, because it's so sacred in that way. The gift of allowing to, it, it, particularly ketamine and ayahuasca is embodied, but it's still, you know, you're seeing yourself right in your body. That's been my experience of knowing that yes, and you can, you can hold it with, deep compassion and love and yet you're not all of those things that that are challenges and difficulty that's not what you are it's part of your experience you so to take you you have thought but you are not emotion you are not thought these are just things that you yeah experience. yeah and yet what what still radiates and what does feel like it is eternal and infinite it's that expansiveness and it's that connection and it's love, which cannot be described. That was my experience. When I went back to my Tombow in 2011, after I walked myself back, I sat down on my bed, and that is when I had the ecstatic experience because I was safe in my own Tombow, and I sobbed and cried because it was so beautiful, and I felt the love of the universe, and I felt the love of my daughters and my beloved, and it was amazing. So I did eventually have it, thank goodness. Um, and then I went into a whole cycle again because so much was in my body. You know, I had drunk so much more the second night than the first night. But this, this knowing, I think that's what allows us to be in multiple dimensions at one time, is that we are not just one thing. And we are not just these bodies and that I am not my anger that I have a lot of right now. Um, that I think that if anyone is human and aware and conscious and awake at this time on this earth, if they are not experiencing anger and allowing it, I'm not sure they're awake and conscious. And I feel that strongly. And, um, and there's an opportunity because if, if someone's not feeling anger, it's an opportunity to say it's okay to feel anger because we all really need to feel angry right now about a lot of things just in the way humans are treating humans and other, other living beings. Um, that in, in and of itself, along with everything else, our, our, our home, Mother Earth, and, and all, of, all, of, all of this. Um, so the gifts are, are just incredible. In, in all of this, to be able to have the awareness and um, and to be able to connect with others on the level to, to meet us, to be able to have these conversations and meet us just in in comfort and awareness, non-judgment, non-attachment, and to say, to be able to say, I'm putting resistance in the fire. That's what I'm putting in. That's what I was doing in February in the jungle. I went for trust, which is trust for myself, something that wasn't developed, you know, early on. So I'm here now to do that. Okay, let's do it. Like I'm moving through. I'm not staying, I'm not staying back there. I'm moving through. But to be able to share in this way and say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing this too as a sharing. 
because everyone is having their own experience and none of us can say that anyone is right or wrong. That's not what it's about. It's, well, here's what I experience. I talk to the plants and I talk to the bunnies that come in the backyard and ask them why they're visiting me now. And then I paint them because then they come through me even more and then I get even more medicine from them and it's a gift. So it's a huge gift. And I do agree with you that COVID-19 is as well. It's, it's neutral. It's a virus on the earth. You know, there's no war. It's neutral and, and we have to take care of ourselves and each other. And we do that in many ways. And there are ways that it's unfolding as to how we all do that as a society and as, as medical professionals and, you know, all of those details. Um, and the unrest is a, really is a gift and it's horrible at the same time. When we were at the march and the demonstration, I wanted to just cry the whole time because it felt so awful that we had to be doing this. And at the same time, I was so grateful that we were doing it. So it was both dimensions without a doubt. Yeah, we certainly live in interesting and, um, I don't know, for me, very eye-opening times. Um, you know, I don't think I would have been able to, I don't know, find the courage or even the awareness or the wherewithal to ask myself some of the questions that I've been asking myself recently about being a white male in everyday society, you know? Um, I was painted by the brush that, you know, I was painted by. Others right. others helped condition things into me that I was completely unaware of. And right. um, thank goodness for, uh, you know, there's a lot of people suffering out there, but thank goodness that this came along to give the opportunity to do that self-reflection. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, to include Ralph Arnold. Um, this amazing being and this artist who's in spirit now in my presentation, for example, is an opportunity. You know, it came to me right away. It came in my conversations with my siblings. We were talking about my parents' friends and, and art and how we grew up and all of that. And I was like, whoa, here you are. Yeah, you're going to be in this presentation. How cool is that? And then I found a website and there he was, you know, with even some videos, shared it with my parents and yeah, there are so many opportunities, even through the challenges, the pain, the suffering, the, the deep suffering. Um, I really, I really try to live that way. It's, it's my, it's my prayer really to live that way. Like, okay, what are the opportunities in it? And sometimes they're not there right away for sure. Sometimes I'm in, I'm in it. I'm in the feelings and the emotions, <laughs> knowing that I'll continue to move through. Um, well, I want to be respectful of our time today, and you know, I totally spaced out at the beginning of the podcast to ask you one and only standardized question that I ask people, and so I thought we might use the remainder of our time to do that. And so, um, the initial question that I always ask is: the podcast is called Conversations with the Mind, and we've, we've traversed so many different things today, but to, to bring it all home. For you, what does that phrase mean, conversations with the mind? What sort of imagery or uh, description, um, story comes with it from Christine? Mm. What comes right away and initially is my own mind, because all I know is my own, right? Everything's a reflection, but one of the artists in my work in my presentation is Frida Kahlo and how she painted herself because she said it was the only thing that she really knew. Mm -hmm. 
So what comes to me right away and initially is my own mind and that it's, it's, an, it's an entity in and of itself. It's, it's, a, it's almost like a spirit in and of itself and it's not about the brain. That's a construct and a physical manifestation. I love when Evan Alexander talks about the brain as a neuroscientist, a nurse, neurosurgeon, and that consciousness does not exist in a, in a construct. So that's what really lives for me in, in that statement and in that space is that the mind is this entity and it's really like a child to be held and loved and swaddled and cared for and, and, forgiven and shown and just really honored. And I feel like with that kind of awareness, then consciousness is something that we just know. And it's, it's not in the mind. That consciousness is, and it's something that we're held in in connection with every living entity here manifest and in the other worlds, and that the mind is something that has experienced life in this human body, and that we can work with that. It's like material to work with for our lifetime. So both are so important, and the mind is really so, it's like a flower and petals like an orchid really you know this really delicate entity that just wants to be held and loved and 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 told it's okay it's okay it's all right and there's this bigger encompassing consciousness that is connection to everything that is for the listeners out there nurture the mind because it is it's like it's like a garden you know if you don't you don't turn the soil once in a while. Uh, if you don't water it, if you don't give it good nutrients and good information, um, it's gonna produce, or it's not gonna produce for you. Right. You know, the more you tend to it, just like a garden, the more you tend to the mind, the more fruits you're gonna experience from your labor. Yeah, garden, child, infant. Yeah, yeah nurturing, love, understanding, awareness. Just, I just keep getting this vision of uh, I have two um, hammock swings in the back, in my little backyard, and I just keep getting that vision of, of being swaddled, you know, just swaddling the mind. <laughs> I hadn't thought of it that way before, so thank you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and one last thing. There was an interesting uh, ketamine study that came out this week, or just last week, right before the weekend. Um, and it was on mice, which, um, you know, wasn't on humans. But anyway, they found that on high-dose ketamine, um, the brain functioning actually shut off altogether. Um, and it was associated with what we call in humans uh, the K-hole state, right, with high-dose ketamine. And I know I've been in a number of K-holes before, and a K-hole is anything but, uh, I mean, it is super active. It's anything but... Uh, flat line, right? So even if there's zero brain activity, the mind is just going and going, going, probably because the brain and the limited functionality of the brain has gotten out of the way, you know, um, which I thought this was, this was just interesting evidence to kind of, um, you know, show with, with mice at least that 
even without brain function, the mind itself can be extremely active and that the mind exists outside of this organ that it, you know, the brain is almost just like a filter or a, a computer, you know, where the programming runs through it, you know? Yeah. For me, it's even not even the mind for me, it's consciousness. Yeah. Consciousness, I think is one level above that, right? The mind is just a one, one little, high sliver of consciousness yeah it's like the brain the brain can be turned off the mind then stops being busy and then it's connection to all that is and i too have there in with with that tool of ketamine and other ways and it's so beautiful and that's a death experience in and of itself because you're you're releasing from the body and um and then where are you (laughs) you're here right you're here well, thank and you. And everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> I want to thank you again for coming on the show today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and get to know you on a much deeper level. And uh, I wish I could just give you a big hug right now because I miss you. Um, thank but, you. I feel the same. Yeah. But we'll see um, each other, I'm sure, in person soon. And one day I'll have you back on the show where you can come to the studio and we can record in person. That would be great. And this has been an honor and a joy. It's been such a treat to get to know you better, Shane. And And I look forward to more. Great. Thank you. Okay. Ciao. Amazing, amazing, amazing show. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining me today, even though we could only join through Zoom. I really appreciate your time and your wisdom that you bring to all of us who are listening to this show. Um, You know, I like to think that this show is a platform in which we can bring together each individual piece of consciousness, uh, bring it to the table and start to put together this large uh, eight and a half billion piece puzzle and try and figure out, you know, what is this thing that we're all living in? So thank you, Chris, for your contribution, your puzzle piece. Um, It was an amazing conversation. And uh, for any of you guys or gals out there who want to uh, contact Chris, you can find her at Christina Pateros Art on Facebook, ChristinaPateros.com, Whispering-Stones.com, so WhisperingStones.com, and SpiritFilledJourneys.com. I'll put those all in the description below. Um, thanks for coming today, guys. Please like and share. Tell your friends and family about the show. Start these conversations up in your own networks and then refer them to the show. That's a great way. Uh, you can donate to the show. You know, five bucks here and there really helps us out. And go support us on YouTube. That's the Mind Ops YouTube page, M I N D hyphen O P S. Until next time, take care of yourself and keep asking those deep questions. See you next time.
Conversations with the Mind podcast is sponsored, as always, by MindOps.com. That's M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S dot com. Come check us out. We're an eclectic counseling company providing both mental health and mental performance services to individuals, small and large groups, teams, businesses, and military individuals through face-to-face sessions or at a distance using phone or confidential video chat apps. We bring a unique Buddhist Western lens and specialize in general psychotherapy for all mental difficulties, sport and performance psychology for performance enhancement through mental training, addiction counseling for any maladaptive or destructive habits, and psychedelic integration therapy to make the most from your visionary medicine work. We're available as well for corporate workshops to address the needs of your employees' wellness. Thank you for listening to the show, and please go check us out, mindops.com and the MindOps YouTube page.